Hello and welcome to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Akshay Taylor, and today I'm joined by a special guest, Javier Leva. So, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Because uh, I've been looking forward to this talk for a while. <laughs> Me too, man. We've, we've postponed it enough. But yeah, my name's Javier Leva, like you said, and I'm the host and creator of Pretend Radio. And Pretend Radio is a podcast about real people pretending to be someone else. So, uh, you know, I have con artists on my show. I have snake oil salesmen, false prophets, you know, like anybody really living a lie. Like I've done an episode on undercover cops. And so it's true crime, but uh, kind of on the lighter side of things. Yeah. And anyone listening, you should definitely go check it out because it's one of my favorite shows. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it's, uh, it's kind of a neat show because it doesn't really fit nicely in, in any like category and i like that because it allows me to like really explore like really crazy stories and i never get bored because every episode mm-hmm. is so radically radically different than the previous one yeah so i think my favorite one that i listened to was the snake or salesman because oh, that was like three episodes of that wasn't it you know um it was uh the first two episodes of season two and it's one of my personal favorites just because it took a long time to really uh, work that story like some episodes of mine are investigative journalism and i feel like that one was it because i ended up in order for me to get the interviews that i got i had to really gain the trust of these people that um were drinking bleach to cure themselves of depression cancer hiv autism you know like they um these people did not want to be interviewed and so I had to really embed myself in the um, MMS community, which is that's what they call the bleach water that they drink and talk to them every night, earn their trust. And eventually by talking to all these uh, people that drink this stuff, they got the snake oil salesman to call me. But you see, I would have never found the snake oil salesman's contact if it wasn't for the fact that I really worked the story so I don't know if that shows at the end, you know, like if because some people when they listen to the show they think, oh, these guests magically appeared, you know. But no, it took oh, no. a lot of work. That, that I think that one in particular really really showed it. <laughs> like you know, the fact that this this woman, the the actual snake oil salesman, is a woman, and you know, she fled the United States. I mean, she was basically kicked out um, because if she didn't leave the United States, she was gonna she basically couldn't practice that anymore and so she mm-hmm. moved to mexico and then after she moved to mexico she went somewhere in europe and went dark i mean there's no way to reach her only people within that community they do this skype call and they exchange money i guess through paypal uh but she was pretty much <laughs> undetectable and i found her wow. i mean it was it was incredible like to me like that was such a big deal you know it is amazing like the people you interview but yes, anyway, we can go on about this for ages. So yeah. let's um, uh, let's in, let's introduce the topics we're going to talk about. So do you want to go first? Because I already know yeah. what you're doing. <laughs> well, um, you want me to talk about the case that we, that um, we just um, give a quick like quick overview. Um, we won't go into too deeply now. Okay. Yeah. So I thought it would be a really good opportunity because you know I work on a lot of stories. Like we just talked about the snake oil salesman. And sometimes the stories just work, right? Like the, the snake oil salesman called me. But sometimes it doesn't work. 
you know, and sometimes it's like the easiest stories if you think that you could get an interview, you can't, you know? And so a lot of, I have like a file called the graveyard, which is basically (laughs) all these great stories that, that uh, never became a pretend radio episode because um, I need to have an interview in every show. And if I can't get the victim or the con artist, I don't have a show. Right. So yeah, yeah, I thought it would be a cool idea to kind of go over some of the, the stories that I wanted to do but i couldn't i'm excited yeah <laughs> but yeah yeah and uh i'm going to talk about like i was originally going to do a uh serial killer but i changed my mind because i um did some re- i was doing some research just generally while i had a week off uh so i got a few documents done and i'm going to be talking about a kind of historical legendary me- medical um substance i guess it is Mm-hmm. And it's known as a mellified man, also known as human mummy confection, or the uh, local name is Mirren, uh, which translates to honey person. That's very cool. I, so we're we're really digging into uh, the history books of this one, huh? Um, or Google, but yes. Or <laughs> <the> Google. <laughs> nice. But yeah, I thought it was really interesting, so I decided to push this one up instead. Um, and really get that range of topics in because I'll keep it buried. Yeah. So, um, and on that, yeah. And also, I'm today I'm drinking Burning Sky Free Floyd's collab. Uh, it's a beer called Burial Vault, which I thought seemed perfect. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, I am still working because it's four o'clock <laughs> here <laughs> in Eastern time zone in the United States. So I am drinking iced water. <laughs> Perfect. But okay. tonight, at, to celebrate this amazing podcast that we're recording, I will, I will make sure I make up for it. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not a requirement to drink in the show. It's okay. I don't always. But yeah, I've just been very excited to try this. So I was like, the podcast is a good reason to try these fancy beers. <laughs> but yeah, so, um, Javier, you're the guest. So wh- what order would you like to go in? Would you like to go first or should I? Sure. Let me, I'll take a stab at it. Excellent. <laughs> no, no pun intended. Yeah, cool. Oh, so in that case, we'll cut to music and be right back with a, um, but with your top, with your stories. Excellent. So, And we are back. So, Javier, I believe you have some stories to tell us. Do you want to take it away? Absolutely. So, I, I, a lot of people ask me, how do I get my story ideas from? And a lot of times, it's really just by the Associated Press, which is a news organization here in the States where we just, it's like a news feed. And news is just like flooding their feeds all the time. And stories publish and then they die off so it's like the 24-hour news cycle ends up killing a lot of good stuff so i kind of feast on the associated press you know because it's it's a good starting point and one day i ran into the story that was that just i couldn't believe it because it's it's a cold case and usually i'm my show's not about cold cases but um, this cold case, uh, this case has been closed for 24 years, right? 
-hmm. And the day, the 24th anniversary of the crime, to the very day, uh, the killer confesses. And that really caught my attention. Because the killer was the the father-in-law of the victim. He thought he was on his deathbed. And so he's the the murder happened in, in North Carolina and he was living in Louisiana. And so he's laying on his deathbed and he thinks, you know, and this is it. And so he confesses to this crime of killing his son-in-law. And uh, it turns out it wasn't, it, he got better. He didn't die. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> heartbreaking and uh, <laughs> incredible at the same time. So like... the man that he confesses to reports it to the police and he gets arrested you know yeah isn't that amazing and so you know suddenly i hear this story and i want to know more right like i want to know why did he kill his son-in-law you know Mm -hmm. and um you know i wanted to know his daughter's story like you know what what was going on that you know that caused him to kill him so let's talk about that in a second but I kind of want to describe to you how he killed him, right? So 24 years prior to this confession on his deathbed, um, he, he basically bludgeoned this guy to, to death, right, in a, in a mobile home, which, you know, they, this yeah. took place, like, out in the countryside. So, like, there, there's nothing here. It's, it's just trailers and small houses and a lot of farms, right? Mm-hmm. And so he bludgeoned this guy to death. But then he set the mobile home on fire. And so when, when it happened, you know, it, it did seem like a criminal behavior, right? But it almost, it, I think police at the time thought that the trailer just caught on fire and he died. Mm. So nobody was looking for the murderer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like nobody yeah. knew what the motive was. This guy basically killed his son-in-law and took off and started living somewhere else. And, and we you know, um, got married to another woman and, and just rebuilt his life. And as far as I know, uh, he, he's never had any like criminal record after that. I mean, it was just, it really intrigued the crap out of me. Right? I'm not surprised. Like that's, um, like that's both incredible and terrifying because mm-hmm. you gotta think like how many other people have gotten away with stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, you know, it is just so weird that it happened like the same day on the 24th anniversary. Yeah, like it's, it feels scripted almost. Yeah. So I, I, I wanted to learn more, right? So I got a copy of, of the press release that the mm-hmm. police department sent out. And it was a North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. Yeah. Um, did this report. And they basically said that uh, Mr. Gregory, which was his son-in-law, was found in, in the bedroom of the mobile home. Mm-hmm. And when they did the death certificate, they sh- it did show that he had blunt force trauma, but um, you know, it, it, his body obviously was completely burned. The whole mobile unit burned yeah. down. And um, okay. So yeah. So they, they started looking into, you know, I started trying to dig up more information as to why would he want to kill his son-in-law? And, you know, I think he just wanted to, to, uh, to get, revenge on his son-in-law because i guess there was uh, allegations of abuse for uh, he was abusing his daughter and their two children and maybe this guy just snapped his name was alan deaver 
and maybe he just snapped one day and you know he wasn't going to take it anymore and he took this guy out you know um but you know nothing came out afterwards a normal life and suddenly you know confesses and is now arrested so the first thing i did was i wrote him a handwritten letter and i do this a lot sometimes when i want to communicate with with people who are in prison a lot of times what i do because i needed to get him in order to get the story so i wrote him a handwritten letter you know telling him that um that you know i realized that that why he confessed it's 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 good to clear your conscience especially when you're reaching the end of your life and um that you know my friend a good opportunity to to uh kind of wrestle with with those demons that he's been living with for 24 years and uh i never heard back from him and i wrote him again and i never heard back from yeah. him but um and then <laughs> so you know I, we talked about the snake oil salesman work i did for that story so i, I do a lot of work stories like this i could travel to this town so i, I went short of actually like going to this town and knocking door to door um yeah but what i did was i was like well i don't have to drive down there because facebook you know i could find people that live in that small town and it's a small town right so everyone should be talking about this right like people should know something right so you know i told you how much work i did for the snake oil salesman and how much work it took to, to actually get the sales uh, uh, snake oil salesman uh well i did the same amount of intensive work with this um you know i went short of like actually traveling to this town i I decided to go on Facebook and find people who live in this town because I figured if you live in this small town, you know something, right? Or you at least know somebody that knows somebody. And so I started there and I started sending people messages and some people didn't respond. Some people didn't know about it, but some people did know about it or knew somebody that knew somebody like this woman's father and uh, knew about this case. And, you know, I, I tried to convince him to talk, but nobody would talk about it. And hmm. none of the letters that I wrote to him, uh, I guess, I, I don't know if they made it to him or not, but maybe he just wasn't interested and in, maybe he had already cleared his conscience. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a sad story, but in a way, you know, you know, we all make mistakes in life, right? Like um, some are small, some are like killing your son-in-law. And like, it seems like this really bothered him. Sometimes we think about these killers as not having a conscience, you know, and it, mm. and it looked like when this guy was facing death or at least he thought he was right. Um, he, he felt like it was time to tell people. And even if his legacy would be labeled murder, you know, I think he, he thought that that was important to get that out. Yeah. Like, yeah, it seemed to, what's called, I, I had a exact phrase for this when, while you're talking about, I think you've actually uh, addressed most of it, right? Yeah, it does seem a lot like uh, just conscience clearing, and um, that must have been on his mind for 24 years, it's not a short time. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and I wonder, some of my questions were like, I wonder if his new wife knew about this, you know, like, could you imagine, you're like marrying oh, somebody... Yeah, he had a new life, basically, a new wife, a new life, new kids. You know what I mean? Like, he he moved and started all over again. And, you know, I just wonder how you could just do that. And I wonder, you know, you don't, how do you bring that up to your 
new wife, like, hey, you know, I killed my son-in-law and I actually got away with it. And, you know, like, was it a shock to her when he confessed? I didn't, I didn't even think about it. Like, if we had family and stuff, wow, that, that would be one hell of a revelation. Think about it in a different, like, say, say it was like your dad or something. I would freak out. Well, we all have secrets, right? Like, yeah. I think there's secrets that people have that, that they hold with them and like really intimate secrets, like secrets that, that you can't even share with your spouse. You know, I think everybody has that to a certain degree, but man, this one, this one was. Yeah. Murder's up there. Yeah. <laughs> cause I'm, cause I'm thinking, cause like 24 years, I'm 24 years old. <laughs> like yeah. he's been thinking about this for as long as I've been around. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. Right. Like, yeah, you know, um, but I also wonder, um, you know, the circumstances, if the reports were true that he maybe suspected of this guy beating his his daughter and grandkids. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I would never kill anybody. Right. But like a lot of the time there is motive and not something that a lot of people admit, but it's like a lot of the time you can kind of see where the motive's coming from. But mm-hmm. <laughs> at the same time. You also know that you're not meant to take it to 11. <laughs> well, you know what? I just, um, I'm just reviewing my notes here. And I have a note that says that, you know, Alan Deaver, who is the guy that we're talking about, who mm-hmm. killed her, his uh, son-in-law, uh, he did it because he thought that, you know, his son-in-law was abusing his wife and two children. Mm-hmm. Well, um, this new line in my notes says that the women and children, however, deny that that they were being abused. So okay. that's that's another layer that I, all these th- this th- this kind of story really frustrates me because I just want to know more, you know. And unfortunately, that's all we know. I think and, that's I think that's the case a lot in the true crimey areas. Like, you know, there's always like there's always blank spots. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's unsatisfying. I think in life we we want, you know, especially like on a show like mine and a show like yours, we want to wrap everything up in a nice little bow. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> but yeah. sometimes life, you know, I, I think this guy he he said he confessed what he did, and mm-hmm. and he's satisfied, right? Like he he feels like he cleared his conscience and he doesn't owe me or you or anybody an explanation, right? That was actually so a you're next. crazy story. <laughs> oh, yeah. you like that so, story? Yeah. Yeah. That was cool. Um, so did you want to go in over another one or do you want to go to mine? Or no, yeah, go go with you and then uh we'll see. Okay, sure. All right, we'll cut to music and be right back then. And we are back. So we're going to get to my story now and talk about malefied men. I thought this was very interesting when I was reading it out because I am a huge folklore fan. And if you, ha- and if you haven't noticed, I'm a little interested in the macabre. Just a tiny bit, 40 episodes in. <laughs> but yeah, and this one came up when I was, um, I was actually originally researching the uh, more well-known self-mummification of um, Buddhist monks, uh, which I may talk about in the future, so I'm not going to go too much into that. But that's uh, quite a famous case uh, where they 
kind of start mummifying themselves uh, when water alive by their diet and stuff like, and uh, a lot of meditation and things like that. This is like similar, but it's different. And one thing you got to remember when, when I'm talking about this that it's like it's it's detailed in like a few Chinese medical sources, uh, but the main one that it, the main one is the uh, Benkao Gangmu, and it's going to be one of those times where I have to say a lot of Chinese words, so bear with me. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was th- this book was written by uh, the Chinese medical doctor and pharmacologist um, called Li Li Shizhen uh, in the 16th century, so pretty far back. Uh, but it was relying on a second-hand account. Um, so there, there, like, there's a bit of a debate of whether this actually happened or if, whether it's um, just legend. But either way, it's very interesting because there are there is evidence to say that honey has been used um, in regards to the dead a fair, a fair bit in the past. But in this case in particular, it's different because it's not, it's not just corpse medicine. Like, corpse have been used in the uh, ancient times a fair bit grinding up bones or eating organs or drinking blood from dead bodies it's been used in greece china mesopotamia india england the u.s but this one in particular um it's not it's not just corpse medicine because there's an aspect where the process of it begins before death and it's with a willing donor uh, or a volunteer i'm just gonna give a quick uh, overview of what happens during the process where essentially the volunteer would be an old man like 80 90 years old maybe 70 and they they kind of realize that their life's coming to an end and they start thinking that they're going to give their body to create this medicine or mellified man essentially human candy um <laughs> that's one uh, way of looking at it yeah it essentially is because um the volunteer will stop eating any food other than honey. And according to this source, uh, it can go as far as even bathing in it. Uh, and shortly after, apparently his feces would, would consist of honey. And after all, even his sweat would con- would start seeping honey. And of course, this diet eventually fr- is fatal. Um, you can't just live, live off honey. There's a lot of sugar and um, sugar. <laughs> When the, when the guy actually dies, they put the body in a stone coffin, fill it with honey, and seal it uh, with the date of death on the coffin. And they won't open this again for at least a century. And when they open it, the contents should have turned into a sort of a candy, essentially. That's insane. Just, kind of, so would, would, would people actually like, consume it? Um, according to this, I'm going to go into the... the um, a bit more about the origins and the source in a second, actually, mm-hmm. um, and because essentially after it was, after it was opened, they take they take the body, break it up, and kind of sell it as a confection on street markets as a rare item with a very big price. <laughs> My gosh, that's crazy. yeah. Like there have been like there's records of like, there are records of um, known mellified corpses uh, before, but. Like I said, this is different because um, of the volunteer part of it. Um, like the first, the f- first known records of mellified corpses um, with served with honey is um, from the fourth century uh, BC, from a Greek historian called uh, Herodotus, um, 
who essentially recorded that the Assyrians used to use uh, honey to embalm their dead. And a century after that, um, uh, it said that Alexander the Great's body was preserved in honey in a in a honey-filled sarcophagus. So, yeah, I see that. Yeah, I'm like looking this up. I'm like fascinated. This is like a whole new world. Like we've been burying ourselves this whole time, and we could have made ourselves confection. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I would. <laughs> Maybe yeah. not a life. I mean. <laughs> you know how much sugar Americans consume? Like we're slowly mellifying our own bodies. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Um, but yeah. So and I'll go into a few more like at the end, because there's a few examples of places that have you that have had um corpse medicine. Like it's been in the West and the East. And uh, it's quite prophetic. There's a lot of um reasons behind it as well but this is fascinating um you know i guess um you mentioned all these historical figures that were like uh mellified i guess yeah. because you know at first i thought you were saying mummified and then and then mellified you know which i had never really um heard that term before but that, mm. that is true it's steeping a human cadaver in honey i yep. mean that that's fascinating. I wonder I why we stopped doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm assuming it takes a lot of honey. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and a lot of it, like you, you were saying, is like self-sacrifices too. Um, it wasn't like just, you know, post-mortem. It was, yeah. it was a, wow. Like this self-sacrifice self, uh, thing, it's um, generally only really known in the East, particularly in the um, Arabic areas. This book, this uh, record that um, Li Shizhen wrote uh, in his book, uh, the Benkel Gangmu, which was in um, not fifteen ninety six, it was written uh, in section fifty two. There's a section called "Men at Man as Medicine" uh, under the entry for money or mummy, and he quotes the the book Chuo uh, Gengler from thirteen sixty six, but by a guy called uh, Tao Zanyi or Tao Zhu Cheng, depending on the source. Um, um, there's actually the direct well there's actually the, the uh, translated quote that I found um, on <laughs> Wikipedia the uh, totally legit source <laughs> yeah so I'm gonna I'm just gonna read it out according to Tao Juching in his Chuo Genglu in the, in the lands of the Arab there are men 70 or 80 years old who are willing to give their bodies to save others such a one takes no more food or drink only bathing and eating a little honey till after a month his excreta are nothing but honey, then death ensues. His compatriots place the body to macerate in a stone coffin full of honey, with an inscription giving the year and month of burial. After a hundred years, the seals are removed, and the confection so formed, used for the treatment of wounds and fractures of the body and limbs. Only a small amount taken internally is needed for cure. Although it is scarce in those parts, the common people call it mellified man, or mirin. Or in their foreign speech, Munai, thus Mr. Tao, but I myself do not know whether the tale is true or not. In any case, I append it for the consideration of the land. According to uh, like these his these historians of according to historians of Chinese science, um, there's two guys in particular called uh, Joseph Needham and Lu Guadian. Uh, mm-hmm. The content of it was Arabic, 
but the story got mixed up with a, a Burmese custom of uh, preserving the bodies of abbots and high monks and honey, um, so that the quote Western, no, so that quote the Western notion of a drug made from perdurable fle- human flesh was combined with the characteristic of the Buddhist motive of sac- self sacrifice for others. And the writer Mary Roach um, wrote in her book that uh, Lee Shazen is careful to point out that he doesn't know for certain whether it. Whether the story is true, like I said, there's a contention whether it's legend or something that actually happened, because it's plausible based on um, the history of the relationship between honey and the dead with humans, like the use of honey for preserving dead and um, also for medic- medicinal purposes is pretty well established and it's not disputed at all. Um, but there's no other evidence of the medification of willing individuals uh, while they're alive, at least or even using their remains as a healing confection afterwards. And there's no physical evidence that this occurred and no documentation of the ritual or proof of the effectiveness of it. Um, but either way, it's said that it could be rubbed on wounds or taken orally. Um, and, if it's t- and if it was taken orally, it would heal or cure any affliction nearly instantaneously. Mm. And if, any, if the story is to believe, it would be very rare. And and as rare things go, very expensive. So it's it's probably not like this is entirely my own speculation, but it's probably not a big jump to say that people were just selling stuff, saying it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, money is money. <laughs> and how would you confirm it, right? Exactly. Um, and um, especially with the for one, you'd have to have people willing to do it, and for two you'd have to be willing to wait a hundred years, which would be long after anyone making it is dead. Well, that, that's pretty crazy. man. How did you find out about this? Like I said, I was researching um, Buddhist monks who uh, self-mummify, and there's, quite, and there's some very well-known records of um, successful self-mummification by Buddhist monks, and you can actually see pictures of the, of the bodies. Yeah, even. I've actually I've been looking at it. It's so disgusting. I'm here at work, and I'm like, Wondering if people are walking by while I'm yeah. looking at Melified <laughs> Mummy. Melified Man is, a, is actually a, more, a modernistic word for it because um, Lee called, called a concussion Mirren, which translates to honey person or Melified Man. And um, there's also the word uh, mirror, uh, Miseren, which uh, translates to honey saturated person, which I prefer myself. Let's get it right, you know? Yeah. Um, let's see. I don't know, just but yeah, like um there's like it is plausible that this could happen. Like let's talk about some of the uh, actual properties of honey in um relation to this. Like I said earlier, it's been used um in preserving uh, chief abbots by the Burmese, um, particularly with priests. Um and they generally preserve them in coffins full of honey. And honey also has a reputation for me- medical uses. And um, longevity it has a uh, natural antibiotic, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, because it's um, antibacterial uh, or bacterial, properties. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, generally, the antibacterial properties are generally the result of essentially low water activity causing osmosis. So that can uh, draw water out of wounds and stuff. And also um, containing small amounts of hydrogen peroxide and having a high acidity as well. And uh, the combination of them have a uh, Given a reputation as a plausible way to mummify a human cadaver, despite lack of concrete evidence, 
And like it's been used for at least 2,700 years as a um, medicine for a topical application. Like the ancient Sumerians used it and the Egyptians used it as well. Probably more. <laughs> yeah. But it's funny. It's only actually been recent, like recent years, like probably last. I'm not sure the exact year or whatever, but it's probably like last hundred or so years where it's actually been explained as to why it's so good at it, like chemically at least. But they had to they had to go through the trial and error. Yeah. <laughs> trying to figure it out. Apparently it's it's because of the unique composition and the process of turning nectar into honey by bees. So honey is pretty well known for being good for long term storage and um can be edible after centuries, even thousands of years. They found um, pots of honey in a, like in different tombs that are still edible. I probably wouldn't try it, would you? <laughs> I mean, probably not. But um, did you see when they uh, they found those coffins in um, Egypt recently? Uh, with like, and they had three bodies in it with like some essentially what rot liquid. I, I'll call it. <laughs> it's like a red liquid, oh, and it, like because essentially when their bodies aren't there, probably they'll essentially melt away from what I can understand. Yeah. <laughs> and they just, there's like this soup at the bottom. And uh, <laughs> I've got to bring it up because uh, there was a, I saw a petition for it afterwards and it was like, it, it got, went viral for a while. And it was, it was literally just called let, let people drink the soup. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think, I think it had a few thousand signatures last I looked. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I wonder, where, I wonder what this petition is now. Yeah, I know. But essentially it's just sewage. Album, <laughs> yeah, like it's it's been used a lot, like like I've mentioned a few times. So it's been used as a preservative for food and stuff. It's been used um, way before refrigeration. They need to, they need to be creative on on keeping food fresh. And ancient Egyptians uh, used honey as uh, like I said, it, they found jars of honey, but they essentially put it with the bodies because it was a uh, seen as food for souls uh, due to due to the long life it has, uh, and it's been used. By Hindus, the Chinese, Babylonians, Africans, Romans, Greeks, and all sorts um, as part of the burying tradition. Um, well, I think we should all reconsider our uh, death plans, you know, like um, thinking, uh, the honey. Yeah. Apparently, uh, King Edward I of England, who died in 1307, was found, uh, was preserved kind of honey. He, like when the body was found, it, the hands and face were well-preserved due to being coated with a layer of wax and honey. You know, you know who else um, was mummified, which uh, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but uh, John Wilkes Booth, who uh, shot um, Abraham Lincoln, I believe I heard that he was mummified. That like, they, okay. um, they, they found this body. Then I don't, I don't know this for sure, but I think, you know, it's like, there's some history, like the recent history of like mummified, uh, celebrities, I guess. <laughs> if you want to yeah, call them I've, actually an, I've actually got an unreleased episode where I talked about a very interesting mummification case, um, which I won't go into too much, but it should be coming out in the, in the future. Uh, oh, so I can't wait to listen to it. That was that was quite a modern case as well, which is very interesting. But yeah, yeah, like the human body has been used plenty. Like there's been there's like history of pe- people using urine or breast milk or just flesh yeah. or blood. Uh, as mm-hmm. various medicine, for medicine uses, um, and well, you got to use what you had, right? At the time, yeah, like, they didn't like have drugstores and stuff, you know. So you had to I use mean, natural elements. Yeah, like in the Middle Ages, it probably peaked between the 12th and 18th century uh, in Europe. In Europe, at least, 
and it's it's pretty well documented within uh, chemistry books between the 16th and 18th century uh, of the medicinal use of, men- of mummies and therefore the, s- the sale of fake ones as well. But apparently nowhere outside of Arabia where the corpses is volunteers. Like uh, in the Middle Ages, mummies were quite commonly used, not just as medicine, but also as um, fertilizers or, or even as paint. In the Roman Empire, apparently the blood of dead gladiators was used as a treatment for epilepsy. Uh, it's like, you know, you, you found this like really cool topic and then it like opens up a can of worm. Now, uh, worms, I just want to know about all these other like types of methods, yeah. you know? So, yeah, it's like, that's why I added these um, extra bits at the bottom with uh, other cultures and stuff. Because I thought, because there's so much that you can go into. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, really, like these uh, could uh, these could all like you know branch out into other yeah. topics. I've actually got another, I've even got another quote here. Actually, um, it's but is in a book by Bernard Reed, Bernard Reed, Bernard Red, something like that. One or the other. He suggests the connection between uh, Euro- European medieval practices and um, those of Middle East and China as well, um, and it goes as follows. Um, the underlying theories which sustain the use of human remedies find a great deal in common between the Arabs, as represented by Avicenna, and China through the Benkau. Body humors, vital air, the circulations, and numerous things are more clearly understood if an extended study be made of Avicenna or, Europe- or the Europeans who base their writings on Arabic medicine. The various uses given in many cases common throughout the civilized world Nicholas Lemery also recommended women's milk for inflamed eyes, feces were applied to sores, and the human skull, brain, blood, nails, and all parts of man were used in 16th century Europe. Just saying, don't apply feces to sores. <laughs> it's not going to go well. Yeah, um, we, we've, we've tested it. It's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've gotten down when that book was written, though. So I assume the 16th century Europe. <laughs> yeah. Or at least as a study of it, I'm not sure. It, it's, I, I'd i say no later than 19th century. Just, well, I'd say no later than the 20th century, mid-20th century, because um, you, don't hear the, you don't hear the phrase uh, the civilized world very often anymore. Yeah, yeah. It, it gets lost on people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, apparently, I do have it in my notes. Apparently, it peaked in the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe. Um, and apparently, for, for several years, um, it was quite common for Europeans to, to do it, including royalty, priests, scientists, um, and just normal people. It's quite routine to ingest remedies containing human bones, blood, and fat. And according to, according to a guy called Sug, he's quoted as saying, the question was not, should you eat human flesh, but what sort of flesh should you eat? <laughs> but apparently the answer was, at first at least, the uh, Egyptian mummy, which would be crumbled into tinctures to, to stop internal bleeding. Then uh, later on, other parts of the body followed, with skull being pretty common uh, for head ailments. It's kind of like a um, like, like cures like. So it's like if something's wrong with your head, you eat a skull. If it's wrong, like you eat like a leg bone or something like that, I assume. And uh, apparently, a, a guy called um, Thomas Willis, who was a 17th century uh, 
brain scientist guy man he brewed a drink for apoplexy or bleeding which um was ming which mi- essentially mixed powdered human skull and chocolate and the one that i found interesting um king charles the second of england would sip something called the king's drops which is essentially a personal kind of solution which was essentially human skull in alcohol and apparently like, even the moss that grew on the buried skull which we called asnea would become a pretty big additive as the powder was believed to cure nosebleeds and epilepsy as well human fat would be used to treat the outside of the body bandages soaked in it um, and it being rubbed into the skin for gout this is where like there's a bit of a difference between western quartz medicine and eastern quartz medicine because um particularly in eastern medicine one of the reasons that human uh, medicine was was seen as um very potent was that it was thought to contain the spirit of the body as at, at the time, the spirit or the soul was uh, would be considered as a uh, very real part of the body. And it, it would generally be seen as what linked the body to the soul. And um, blood was seen as particularly powerful for it. And apparently the freshest blood was considered the most robust, with blood of young men or young women being uh, quite more popular. That It goes out to that, um, as much as I don't like to use the word, TV trope of um, I eat him, therefore I gain his power. <laughs> yeah. Which I'm sure has been used in plenty of uh, media in, involving cannibalism. Well, whereas in Europe, the spiritual part was mostly erased and reduced to just biology and just any other com- like medicine. So I think that was the I think that was the main difference I saw, and I think that's pretty much all of it. Because I mentioned the uh, the Buddhist monks already, so and that was my last point. So um, yeah, I think that's all of it. Man. Well, that you've enlightened me for sure. I, I definitely did not know about this. Um, yeah, it's um, now I'm fascinated. It's part of why I don't just stick to true crime and stuff. I I really enjoy these uh, very niche parts of history, which are really disturbing. Not many people know about them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's um, I think it's so interesting because you know we we all have our cultural like traditions and stuff like that. And, and rarely do you think about like w- what might seem weird to us is, you know, uh, even back then, you know, like there were different cultures. It's, it was perfectly acceptable, but like right now reading it, you know, doing the research just seems uh, so crazy, but yeah, maybe not back then. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth knowing that even at the height of like this, uh, like courts medicine thing cannibalism was still frowned upon mm-hmm. especially when like they were colonizing the um like americas and that that kind of area where it was seen as savagery but you know europeans saw that as medicine so you know uh, there's a lot of uh, bits and pieces going on there but let's stop before i uh start tangenting more but, yeah any That's other cool. comments no no i mean i'm i'm fascinated by it by this and uh, just the different um, ways too. you know, you made me think of there's those mushroom suits too, that we have now. I mean, obviously that's not mummification, but just a uh, different burial. Yeah. yeah. Practice. That's some very mm-hmm. interesting burial. Practice. Yeah. But in terms of mummification, I mean, I'm, that's just a fascinating topic and the, the different ways of preserving. That's super cool. And I'm so glad you, you told me about this because I had never heard of it. Cool. So uh, on that, I think, there's nothing else we can cut to music and come back with a outro 
And we are back. So, I think on that, we are both done for now. So we'll just do an outro and leave it there. Have you any last comments or anything you want to say to anyone? No, but I love I love uh, your show and how how we could just talk about anything and like you know it's it's kind of like this like dark playground you know <laughs> to have all these interesting conversations. So I I'm, might... I'm so honored that you invited me. So yeah, that might be one of the best descriptions I've seen I've had of it for a while. Yeah, dark, <laughs> well, dark playground. <laughs> yeah, no, but then now that's making me. Let's let's try it again. Like, uh, not not dark playground, but dark uh, like a maze. You know, like when you just get lost. Yeah, I don't know. I, I quite uh, like dark playground. <laughs> right, let's stick with like that sandbox. <laughs> yeah. yeah, cool. So, um, did you want to plug your show or anything else? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I definitely. Um, Welcome your listeners to to check out Pretend Radio. We, you know, um, lots of cool stories. We're like a, a year in, and I say we because you know I have been collaborating with a lot of podcasters, um, a lot of different storytellers, and I I always like to open the door to anyone who wants to uh, contribute, like to a Pretend Radio story. But if you just want to listen, uh, the best way to find me is to search Pretend on whatever, wherever you listen to your podcast. And I usually am the first one that pops up. And uh, on Twitter, I'm at pretend underscore radio. And it's the same on Instagram. So I'd love to to have your listeners come over and check it out. Yes, and they totally should because I love your show. So. <laughs> uh, thank, you. Um, thank you. It's a lot of work. Well, when does this air, by the way? This one will air next Tuesday. Oh, okay. Well, then um, also I can kind of preview my next season if you want. Uh, yeah, sure. Go for it. Yeah. So, you know, I'm kind of in between seasons, but I'm about to get back in the game. I'm writing and editing at the moment. But uh, your listeners will, will probably find it fascinating that next season is a serialized season. It's a single story told over uh, seven episodes, maybe more. I'm trying to figure that out right now. But it's about this cult in Western North Carolina. It's a extreme uh, Christian, you know, conservative church that it has accusations of them beating their members, forcing them into isolation for as long as a year, shaking babies and screaming at them. Uh, and most recently, they um, have been accused of cor- uh, corrupting the local government where um these the the members who are trying to get out really have very little faith in this in the uh, sheriff's department the police the social services i mean it's this big mess and uh we're going to be talking about it for for six or seven episodes and it's going to be pretty fascinating um i could i could actually i could actually reveal here that uh i was given exclusive insight into the into the actual church i was invited and i actually sat down with the the church minister the who you know who many believe is a cult leader for an hour and a half and it was it was terrifying and um super interesting so i would love for your listeners to check that out and that should be coming out in hopefully in october i certainly will Oh man! Well, thank you that, for that, having that, me on your show. Amazing. Yeah, no, I, oh, anytime, yeah. man, anytime, and you're always welcome back. 
Yeah, and I already know you've got a story to tell me. So, so my shouts will be to Murdley. Uh, the Murderly Network has usual, so that's murder.ly. Found a bunch of really cool podcasts over there. I definitely recommend checking them out. There yeah, was I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends on Murderly. Um, it's a great lineup, and uh, really excited to see what Murderly comes up with. Yeah, you know, in the next couple of months. I, I I want to I want to plug a couple shows that aren't on it as well. So I'm gonna, I'll plug um target the targeted podcast because that's awesome. Yeah, with Mo. Uh, yes, uh, yeah. great show, great show. Anything else? Uh, Getting off podcast and talk spooky to me because I like saying the name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Social media. We've got. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash blood and rocks. Twitter and Instagram at the bloody rocks. Um, you can email me uh, for pretty much anything you want to at botrpodcast at gmail.com oh and we also have patreon at patreon.com slash blood on the rocks um well i'm i'm trying to get back on top of it now on that i think that's everything so thanks for for being here well thank you so much i I had a blast and I, i can't wait to do it again yeah and for our listeners thank you for listening rate review subscribe don't forget to tell your friends and have a great week I'll see you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.